The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I'm a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. Those are verses 57 to 64 of Psalm 119, verses 49 to 72 of which are the psalm appointed for today, Wednesday, January the 26th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. Um, We're looking at continuing to look at the prophetic uh, words of Isaiah concerning messianic uh, deliverance of the people. We're also in uh, Galatians 2, uh, verses 11 to 21, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, 13 to 29. So the the pronouncement here today, as you're going to see, is that you know what, the plan that I had, the plan to bring deliverance to my people, it's not nearly big enough. That's that's not enough. This Messiah that I'm preparing is so much greater than that, it's unbelievable. In fact, it's, it's announced to the world. And it begins that way. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. Well, there's no coastland to speak of. I mean, not including the Sea of Galilee in the, in the nation. And so this is an announcement that goes beyond the nation. It goes to the coastlands and those from afar. The, pe- the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. And this is the Messiah speaking. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. I had a friend one time that it was in a, in a deep southern uh, parish, and, and this was read, and he thought, what in the world is a polished error, <laughs> E-R-R-O-R, rather than a polished arrow? And, and I, I can relate to that. I feel most of the time like a polished error. Um, but this is the Messiah, and it's a polished arrow. <clears throat> and in his quiver he hid me away for the right time to come. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And certainly on the day of the crucifixion, that's exactly what it looked like, right? It was spent my strength for nothing. However, that's only what it looked like from an earthly perspective, from those not in the know. Because from a heavenly perspective, the glory was just beginning to be seen. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He said, It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And that's what Simeon proclaimed when Jesus was brought to the temple as an eight-day-old child in order to be presented in the temple and circumcised. He, he says that, that he is a light to lighten the Gentiles, the glory of thy people Israel. And so what, what Simeon saw, and remember Simeon had been promised by the Lord that he would see the Messiah. And so people knew that this old man would come to the temple day after day as parents brought their children. And so this old man would look at each child as it came to see, is this the one? Is this the one? And when he sees Jesus, 
He says, Lord, now let us thou thy servant depart in peace. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all mankind, a light to lighten the Gentiles, the glory of thy people Israel. He said, I'm ready to die now. You have fulfilled your promise. I have seen the one who will be the Messiah. And, and as he said, it's more than just a racial Messiah, not just enough to reclaim the Jews, but to reclaim and redeem all of humanity. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and rise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. So, in other words, what he's saying is it's time. The time has come, and you're being answered. When this one comes, then you'll know that you will be glorified and that all the nations will come and that God will make this pathway straight. The mountains will be brought low. The valleys will be raised up in order that all things might be level ground for his Messiah. And while we don't see that completed yet, we can begin, hopefully, to see it in our own lives as we begin to be more like him. And, and in this season of Epiphany, following the, the seasons of Advent and Christmas, when we prepare ourselves for him and then when we receive him, and now we get a continuing revelation of Jesus. That's the, the way that Epiphany works, is this continuing revelation, and we're reading through the gospel, sort of immersing ourselves in the, in the moment, with the people who are seeing this unfolding revelation of Jesus. And hopefully what it's doing in our lives is beginning to change us and beginning to make us those people who are more and more um, in love with and um, delighted by him as we open our eyes to see these things afresh as we do year after year. It's important that we always keep our eyes fixed on him. And it's important also that we continue to, to see these things with fresh eyes and new wonder, that we can see things that we, in the Scripture that we have not seen in years past. It's the reason that we continue to read these same lessons, because we know that we can't exhaust all that's in these lessons. No matter how many years we might read them, no matter how many times we might think about them, there's always something new that's going to come forward, because the Spirit prompts us to see things that we need to see at that time. In the gospel lesson, remember yesterday, Jesus had sent out the twelve to um, cast out demons and to heal. And so, the end of that is, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them, which is the way that it ended yesterday. And we pick up again with that reminder. And then Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. So the ministry has begun. He's done these things. The, the buzz is going around about um, what he is doing. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. 
It's an interesting idea because we don't have any record of John doing miracles. We don't have any record of him doing healings and things like that. All we have of John is is this guy who proclaimed the coming of the Messiah in judgment and the one who points and says, that's him right there. So we don't see these miracles, but now that they believe that he's been raised from the dead, and Jesus had had, had a very low profile prior to this time. And so they say John's been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. There's a new power at work in John, was what they had come to believe. And they know that it's not John as the person, but what they believe is the spirit of John had been brought back to life and put into this body of Jesus. And then others said, no, this is Elijah. And the expectation was Elijah would come, and Jesus sets that record straight, says he has come. That was John the Baptist. He is the Elijah that's promised in Malachi. And so some are saying, no, he, he is Eli- he's Elijah. And others said, no, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. So they're saying it's a new thing, but it's like the old thing. So he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. They're not seeing that God's doing a brand new thing. A dramatically different thing, one who embodies and fulfills all the prophets of old, but who is himself Messiah. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Now, Herod, I've said this before, Herod was a Jew. At least nominally, Herod was a Jew. And then he, he married his brother's wife. And John had said, this is wrong under the law. It's wrong for you to have your brother's wife. You've uncovered your brother's nakedness is the way that it would actually read in Leviticus. So it's wrong for you to do that. And Herodias, the wife, had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. I mean, she took a step up uh, socially and financially in the world by marrying Uh, Herod rather than his brother Philip, because he had more power and more authority in Rome. But she could not put him to death because Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and he kept him safe. So he was afraid because he knew God's hand was on John, and he was afraid that if he put him to death, then it might not go well for him who put him to death. So he kept him safe from his wife. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him greatly. I mean, so the word is striking in Herod, the the word of um, conviction is striking in Herod, but he doesn't know what to do with that because he feels like he's stuck in this marriage. He, he had to know it was wrong. Legally, he had to know it was wrong. But it was to his advantage to have this. And, and also, you know, he knew something about this woman that he had married wrongly. But he heard him gladly because what he heard ultimately was the gospel being proclaimed. He heard the truth being proclaimed, whether it was against him or not. And so he heard him greatly, gladly, but he was perplexed by the word because he didn't see his own way out. An opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. This should sound vaguely like Esther, actually. You should hear that same kind of thing with a weak king who uh, is celebrating with all the leaders of the land. And then Herodias' daughter came in and danced. And remember, in Esther, he wants to call in Queen Vashti so that people can marvel at her beauty and she won't come. So The daughter, however, comes and dances, and she pleased Herod and his guests. And we know this is Salome and the Dance of the Seven Veils. That's what that refers to. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. 
Well, that was a stupid thing to do. That was a stupid thing to do. He, he had every reason to be delighted in her because it delighted his guests. But at the same time, he wanted to reward her for this. Little did he know what happened next. And she went out. And he said, I'll give you anything up to half the kingdom. And she went and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste. She wanted to please her mother. I mean, this is, sounds, in addition to sounding like the story of Esther, it also sort of sounds like Jezebel at work here in this thing, because John is the living reminder of the sin, and he's not going to shut up about it. So she came immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. I mean, you, you hear that immediately with haste, give me at once? I mean, this got to be done quickly. You, you don't think about it. Just do it. <clears throat> He did, she didn't want him to have any regrets about his promise at all. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he didn't want to break his word to her. It's a weak king. Could have said no. Could have said, I'm going to break that oath. That was, that was a rash vow, and I'm walking it back. Because this is what you're asking me to do is wrong, but he's weak. He's weak, and he won't do it. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples, John's disciples, heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Horrible ending for the man who was the prophet who foretold the Messiah and pointed to Jesus. The first one to point to Jesus as the Messiah comes to an untimely and grisly end. You know, we think that we're, I mean, when, I, when we were thinking about going to Rwanda not too long after the, um, the genocide that happened there in 1994, when we were thinking about going there, we had a lot of friends who, who came to us and said, you know, I'm comforted, even though I know it's a dangerous place, I'm comforted in the knowledge that God wouldn't send you somewhere just to kill you. Really. You don't know much about church and mission history if you believe that. You don't, you don't understand that God sends us places and doesn't promise us the outcome of those things, but, but it made people feel better to, to say that and to believe that. And so I never bothered to correct it and say, well, he, he might actually do that very thing. And we have to decide whether we're willing to go just because he said go, not because he promised us everything would go well. And so John, the guy that you would think God would have protected above all else, because he was the one who was given the job to point to Jesus, meets an untimely end. And, and I believe there may be a, a reason for that. And the reason might be that so many people were attached to John that, that, that would have had a difficult time leaving behind John and attaching themselves to Jesus. And so John said, I must decrease and he must increase. Little did John know how much he would decrease in the short term. In the Galatians passage, <clears throat> when Cephas Peter came to Antioch, this is Paul. Remember yesterday, Paul was saying, look, I, I don't have to justify my apostleship to you. I never had to justify it in Jerusalem. I went and met with him after a bunch of years, but not to justify myself. I just wanted to check myself and make sure that what I was doing was actually right and the message that I was preaching was actually right. He said, so I, I don't submit myself to them as an underling. No, no, no. God doesn't see us that way is what he says. He doesn't see me as less of an apostle than them. But what he's also said is, is, is that, that just because I'm an apostle doesn't make me greater in the eyes of the Lord than you. He says, so when Cephas came to Antioch, 
Peter, the guy who is the most important one in the church, the one that everybody at that time would have recognized as the, the leader of the group, when he came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, this would be the brother of the Lord James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. There's a hypocrisy in Peter, he says, that was based in fear. And it seems like an incredible thing because you would have thought that Peter's fear had been conquered. Remember, he, he, he denied Jesus three times on the night of the trial. And then he's hiding with the disciples for fear of the Jews after that. But after Pentecost, beginning with Pentecost, Peter boldly proclaims the message of the gospel to the Jews. Not only that, he's dragged before the Sanhedrin and boldly proclaims the gospel there and says, I have nothing to fear among you. I just have to fear God. There's no other name given under heaven by which a man might be saved. But here what we see is he is afraid of the circumcision party. So he doesn't want to be seen eating with the Gentiles and, and consorting with Gentiles because, well, they don't approve of that. Peter needed to be clear, is what Paul's saying. Peter needed to be perfectly clear. Peter got it until, well, something came along that caused him to fear, and as soon as he had fear, then he withdrew. And the rest of the Jews, he said, acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Barnabas, who had been with Paul and had seen the mission to the Gentiles and the blessing of God's Spirit on that mission, he said, even Barnabas backed away. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, which is Christ alone, not Christ in circumcision, not Christ in the law, but Christ alone, he said, when I saw that their conduct wasn't in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, in public, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to be like Jews? So what's the deal, Peter? You're living like a Gentile sometimes, but now you're turning around when the Jews come, when the circumcision party comes, you're, you're telling these people they got to live like Jews. No, you're not even doing that yourself. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. It's, it seems like a, a shot at the Gentiles, those others that are out there, but it's not, and you're going to see why in a second. He says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. We might not be Gentile sinners who are ignorant of the law and therefore continue to do these things. No, but the reality is we're not justified by works of the law. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. We may not be Gentile sinners, we may be Jews by birth, but we're all saved in the same way, and that's by believing in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And this is exactly what he writes to the Romans. He first condemns the Gentiles because they have... Uh, transgressed against the law that they know through the, the witness of creation. But he says, but it doesn't matter. They're not alone in this. No, the Jews have, have done that likewise. They have transgressed against the law, and it's partly because they haven't understood fully what the law really is. Jesus shows us what that is, and we've all transgressed, and so all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And he says then, he asks the question, what must I do to be saved? And the answer is belief 
in Jesus Christ, and then submitting yourself to his lordship as well, not just taking him as Savior, but also as Lord. He said, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. If I'm going back to the law, then I'm a transgressor as well. For through the law, I died to the law, that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ already. Present tense, he says, or past tense. Actually, I have been crucified with Christ. I guess that'd be present, past participle. Um, it, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose at all. What he said is righteousness, imputed righteousness, is the same for all of us. I don't have any righteousness of my own. And he says in multiple places, those things I had before that I considered to be righteousness, now I look at them and I call them either filthy rags or dung. Compared to the, to the exceeding righteousness of Christ, he says, now I know what real righteousness is. The law got me to a place where I could understand certain things, but I had a, a, a weakened understanding of what real righteousness was until I saw Jesus. And when I saw Jesus, I saw what real righteousness was, and when I saw the real thing, I recognized that I wasn't righteous at all, that it didn't get me where I thought it was going to get me, and so I put my faith and my trust in him, the resurrected one. And that's, that's all that matters to me now. It's just that. He said, my life is his now. I've been crucified with Christ. I've died with him, and I've been reborn to a new life, and the life I live now is, is in Christ. And, and if, if I could say that day after day, then, then, man, I'd be making some progress. And so maybe that should be the thing that I take on today and say, this is what I'm going to take today. I want to, I want to let Christ live through me and let my life be his to live in my flesh this day. Because he is the Messiah, the one who was promised from of old and the one who was announced by John and then proclaimed in the church for the last 2,000 years. And, and, and that is my only hope. And it should also be my chief joy.